Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode. This is our latest discussion of an iconic screenplay from the 21st century. This week we are looking at Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This one was picked by our community members via our Instagram page, so thank you if you voted, and if not, we'd like to invite you to follow that page for more discussions and updates about the show. I really enjoyed recording this episode because this is such a powerful and insightful screenplay, so I hope you enjoy listening to our thoughts this week. I'm happy to say the audio quality is now much improved since the last few weeks as we've invested in a new microphone, considering that this uh, lockdown related to COVID-19 is still going to be going on for a while. Thank you for continuing to support the show during this time, and without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined once again by my favorite partner in conversation about film, Alan Vasquez. <laughs> uh, that's a cool term. That's very uh, makes it sound very uh, fancy. Uh, I'm very happy to be here today. We are going to be looking at three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, written and directed by Martin McDonough. The man behind In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. Yeah, he is a director that I was not very aware of until I saw this film. Had you seen In Bruges? Yeah, a while ago, and I really liked that film, but I hadn't really, wasn't that familiar with his work. And I must say that he is a, an extremely talented writer. So writing screenplays is something that came after that for him. As a playwright, he was primarily active in Ireland, especially in my old town of Galway City. Yes, there's definitely elements of something that feels very stage-like in a lot of the scenes, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, it's interesting to see how different writers bring different sensibilities to their craft and how that ends up impacting the story. Yes, so the origins of this idea come from a bus journey that McDonough says he took around 20 years ago and seeing some billboards with something as painful and angry written about a murder victim in Texas. I think McDonough himself decided or inferred that the billboards must have been put up by a grieving mother. He made up the rest of the story without researching the real events, just trying to get into the drive and the rage he felt such a character would have. And, and very much that is what this film is about. It's definitely centered around um, Mildred Hayes, played by Frances McDormand, and her journey to get answers. I think it's a very powerful story and one that is very character-driven. Yes, and it doesn't shy away from showing us the worst of its characters. There's a lot to dislike about many of them, but it also invites us to see their humanity. It's a very unique film in that it feels very different to what you're normally used to because not only is it a very dark film but it doesn't feel that heavy because of these very odd and very peculiar moments of humor that really kind of elevate it i think this really emerges from a sense of trying to round out these characters no matter how abhorrent some of their actions and viewpoints are, it's not a film you can criticize for portraying people as one-dimensional or simplistic. Even in The Worst of People, there's a common humanity and more to their story than the angriest of their moments. 
I think that was always part of the focus of the film was seeing beyond appearances and trying to get to the root of what's really happening in these very well-formed and detailed characters. I really loved it. I I had seen this film before when it came out. Maybe I was having a bad day when I saw it, but it didn't really leave that much of an impression when I first saw it. I remember thinking it was really good, but not really thinking beyond that. But this time I saw it, I was blown away by a lot of the a lot of the stuff I was reading and I'm so glad we got to review it because it's it's an awesome film. Yeah, so I think we should just start by saying that the decision to take a look at three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri came from the fact that we put this up on the web. Oh, that's right. And just put a question out to our fans and asked which would they prefer. Mm-hmm. The choices were Gangs of New York and Three Billboards and the majority of people responded with Three Billboards including uh, one of our previous guests, Ben Falk. He said McDonough all the way or something like that. Oh, that makes sense. Another fellow playwright. Exactly. And I thought, (laughs) yeah, we're going to have to do this one. It was a film that left a big impression on me back when I first saw it. So I think I actually had the opposite to you in Mm. that my memories of this film were that I had seen something quite special at the time and then re-watching it, it's interesting because the first 30 minutes or so are not that hard-hitting. And I was thinking, maybe this film just plods along a little, maybe it's a bit slow. And then it really explodes around the midpoint. So, of course, I did really enjoy re-watching it and revisiting it and, and reading the, the longer version of the screenplay. There, there was one that was released for the Academy Awards, which was a abbreviated 80 pages which pretty much i think is what was filmed and then the 100 page version contains a number of different scenes which we don't see in the final film yes. and we'll be talking about some of those scenes and how some of them shed some light on other ideas that were included sprinkled around in the screenplay about a bit more background details for some of the characters And then we can also talk about what really makes a scene worth taking out of a film, because arguably a lot of the scenes that are taken out aren't really necessary for the story as well. And that's why, even though 20 pages are trimmed out of three billboards, it's still a two-hour film and works perfectly fine. I think its strengths, the two things that really stand out to me from reading this are dialogue and the humor hidden within that dialogue, the witticisms and the intelligence Mm -hmm. that's underlying dialogue, which is being put into the mouths of characters who are often looked down upon. Uh, These are the the group of people that have been described in the political discourse as the deplorables. This is a part of America that sometimes the, the country doesn't want to take a look at. And yet there is so much of a heart and a human narrative going on in this screenplay and the second part i think that's really worth looking at is how it dramatizes events that are familiar from things that we've heard scattered about on the news and and different aspects of many different stories and compiles it into this singular story it's essentially the idea of cinema reflecting real life this sense of realism even though everything is dramatized and exaggerated. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, familiar traits in a lot of these characters, and which I found 
really interesting because it does have this realism, but the writer is not from the United States. No, he's um, Irish. He's born in Britain. He's Irish. Yeah. But it feels like it's told by someone that was sort of raised around these kind of people and around this kind of um, setting, which is interesting. I wonder how much time he spent exploring rural America or all of that because it's a very specific type of not just language, but I think perception. And I think he was able to capture that really well. And I have a theory about these screenplays that are released for consideration for the Oscar. I think from what we've been doing and every time that I read a script from it, it's exactly like the film. So I think probably what they do is they release a script that takes out all the stuff that they took out. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. like the final, final version. Even if they filmed it but took it out, they're still not going to put those in the screenplay that they released for the consideration thing. So it was interesting to see the stuff that they did take out. It was part of scenes that I felt were taken out. So it was yeah, scenes like, in its entirety, but it was like parts of scenes that are still in the film, but it's just snippets of them are cut out. Yes, there's there's a big one that happens right towards the end that when we get around to talking about that one, there was a minor change that has big ramifications for the story as well. So we'll get around to talking about some of that. It's interesting maybe to just compare Martin McDonough here to someone like Edgar Wright, who had released Baby Driver the previous year, which is another case of a British... Well, he's he's British. Um, mm. Martin McDonough is British-Irish. And that's another case of a British filmmaker coming over to America and making a story set in his vision of America. And yet, Baby Driver is so different. It It exaggerates, it takes all of its inspiration from this kind of golden age of movie making as opposed to this, which feels very much a post-9-11 America that's unsure of its purpose, that's still dealing with the legacy of things like segregation and civil rights movements and the Civil War and everything like that. And this is very much a you-can't-really-look-away screenplay. It's making you confront things that you know are still existing in society and it's not really escapism yeah yeah so i think we can start uh you know start in the beginning and just say that for me the beginning kind of sets the tone for for the rest of the film in that we already know sort of exactly what the story is you know you have a character and you have her drive from the very beginning so i think it's a it's a good way to start a story where the stakes are already really high. You know, a mother lost her child. A mother wants answers. A mother wants to see justice. And right there from the beginning, you already have your audience behind your protagonist, which is essential to do at the very beginning because Mildred Hayes is not exactly a very lovable character all the time. So I think to know her circumstances from the get-go allows us to sympathize with her empathize with her even when she's not doing what we perceive to be the right thing and we understand why she's doing some of the things she's doing because of what happened with her daughter from the get-go we're introduced to three very important characters which is mildred hayes and william willoughby played by woody harrelson the officer in question in these billboards that mildred puts up as a way of wanting 
something to be done to track down and capture the man responsible for her daughter's rape and death. And we have Jason Dixon, who is played by Sam Rockwell, who is uh, um, probably one of the funnest, most interesting characters I think I've ever read or seen on a film. Uh, he's presented as a very, not particularly very smart, racist officer who, you know, he just seems to be stunted in emotional growth and just immaturity in general. So it's a very weird mix of characters, if you really think about it, to build a whole story around. They couldn't be more different than what they are. One of the things that works really well about how the character structure is set up is to have Willoughby and Dixon clearly demonstrate each other's differences and the qualities that each one of them has. Mm. Because I think the simplest idea, if you were to take this idea and try and write it, would be to have the grieving mother against the police chief. And you would put all of Dixon's qualities into Willoughby. And I think it really helps to have them separated out and actually have Willoughby be a very endearing character who probably is the one we sympathize with most of out of everyone in the film. And then you also have Dixon to reflect just how bad certain things are in that police department as well. So I'd just like to look at exactly how this screenplay is constructed because I think it's very clever. The, the opening sequence is Mildred looking at the three billboards and an idea being sparked in her mind. Mm. The second scene is her going to Red and asking if she can rent them out. There is a lot of humor in that scene as well. You can tell that her purposes are not entirely everyone's idea of moral, let's say, because she's asking what words she can't put on a billboard. Oh, yeah. and I think that, that adds a bit of fun and humor to the whole proceedings. And then the next scene shows Dixon discovering the billboards being put up. And he's then representative of the police department for us. We see him before we see Willoughby. Right. That's kind of your setup. I think from that point on, most of the screenplay follows along a traditional screenplay structure to, to some degree. I think it, it has a very clear false victory. It has a very clear midpoint and everything like that. But I think that setup is just very carefully constructed. It tells you just enough that you need to know and to be gripped by the story. And then it allows everything to unfold. And probably the biggest and most important scene in that early sequence is when Willoughby goes to Mildred and is, is really asking for a bit of understanding. And she just gives him no room whatsoever to, to work. It, he yeah. either can get on the case all those billboards are staying up. Often people think, because of the, the whole save the cat motif, it's how do I make my protagonist sympathetic? And Mildred does gain our sympathy quite quickly, I think, but also loses it very, very quickly. And often. We're talking within the first 10 pages. She's already done the first thing, which I think most audiences will find a little bit problematic, which is when... Willoughby goes and tries to reconcile with her, tries to find some common ground, and he tells her he has cancer, and she says she already knows, and she put the billboards up anyway. First of all, it tells us so much about her, and it also tells us how bad the pain must be to drive her 
to keep going and to persist with this ideal. I think the priest at one point puts it as everyone is behind you with the Angela thing, but no one is behind you on the billboards. Right. And it's actually about this pain driving her into becoming more of an isolated person in this community. And I think it really catches us off guard. As an audience, we're expecting to have a sympathetic protagonist. It's very easy to gain sympathy for this person. They've lost their daughter in a a horrific crime, which has not only been so hard for her to deal with, but also is something that clearly is known about in the entire community. It's been talked about on the news. This spotlight has been put on her, and we find her months later still dealing with the grief. And then... As soon as someone goes and offers her the palm leaf and is trying to make peace, she throws it all back in his face. And I think that catches us off guard as an audience, and it really sucks us into the story from that point on. Yes, because you see the complexity of this character and you see how realistic she is. Because in that scene where he pretty much just asks her, like, did you not know? I mean, if you knew that I had cancer, why would you still go about doing it and she says something like well it wouldn't be good with you dead or something you know just very cold and um yeah the, emotionless. Bill- the billboards wouldn't be effective if you were dead yeah right and then he leaves but we see a glimpse of remorse when he leaves and these are the little bits that are amazing because you see that even though she said something you know particularly bad she f- she does feel bad about it in secret It's like a part of her knows that she's not really doing the right thing or that she's not going about it the most positive way. But her anger and her grief is just so big that it's almost like she's hostage to that anger. And we see how that anger manifests into these sometimes very horrific acts and also kind of funny, which is partly the reason why I love this film is because there's moments of... There's something terrible happening, but there's a humor in it that's very, very interesting. Um, so yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a character that's not always easy to love, but always, at least for me, I always understand where it's coming from. I think you're right there. When you're writing characters and you want to write a good guy or a bad guy, essentially the most important thing is the audience understands why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I don't think there's any point where we don't understand what Mildred is doing. Yes, which allows us to understand to what extremes that kind of anger can take someone. And she's not the only one. I I found the grief to be a, a part of the theme of the film, but also the anger and the violence that comes from that grief. I think that's especially spotlighted in the script and the story. And also one thing that we don't really talk about too much is... um sort of visual cues to kind of give the story some texture. But it can also be done within the script. I found myself catching a lot of scenes having a lot of red sort of splattered in its lighting and its costume design or its, you know, which is something that's not necessarily have to be tied down to a script. But I think as a screenwriter, if you really want to infuse your work with all these little details, I think that's a great way to show character too by kind of pouring some of that texture around the scenes and in the wardrobe or whatever, the colors. I would actually go further to say the recurring colors are red and blue. Mm Mm-hmm. And partly that's because they are the colors of the police department. 
the sirens that you'll see on top of the police cars. We associate the red and blue with that. Mm -hmm. In the scene where they're trying to put out the billboard fires, you'll see that Francis McDormand and Lucas Hedges are lit, one side blue and one side red, as they're they're facing this fire. And the blue Mm -hmm. presumably is from the the moonlight or the nighttime environment, and Mm -hmm. then the red from the fires. And the presence of the American flag is everywhere. In so many scenes, you will see it. Funnily enough, that's the first difference from the screenplay to bring up is the fact that in the screenplay, this is set. The day that the billboards are put up is on the 4th of July. Oh, right. And that was changed to Easter. I don't know if that was because of the time of year that they were filming or if they decided that they didn't want to put too many negative associations with the 4th of July holiday. But originally, I think this... This film is very clear, and the American flag is mentioned so many times in the screenplay, and it's such a clear presence on screen so many times that it's very clear Mm -hmm. that this is meant to constantly remind you that you are in America. That is constantly the message that you're getting. Every time there's a big event in the film, there's a flag to remind you this is where it's happening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing I do also want to bring up is that because it's centered around a small town, we're not going all over the world. You know, this is our home for the whole story. We get to know the characters that inhabit this town. And Martin does such a good job at coloring the background with really, really interesting characters that really elevate not just the story, but it elevates the characters' dynamics because it throws stuff at them that they can then react to, which gives us more of a knowledge as to who they are as people. And I think one of the first ones that we get to know is Red Welby. And he's an interesting character because we see, I feel like in the beginning, he kind of represents the public or at least the uh, the townspeople because he's very empathetic towards her goal, her intention of wanting to bring justice to the case of her daughter. So he very much helps her put up these billboards but a few scenes later, he's informed that Willoughby is, he's got cancer. And all of a sudden, he changes his perspective on that. And it's around the time that I think the, the townspeople have turned against Mildred because they find out that he has cancer and all this other stuff. So, where I think most people knew before yeah, that it Yeah, there's a constant out. sense that this news just spreads around a small town yeah. like that, like wildfire. And yeah, if a secret like that can't be kept... Obviously, there's probably been a lot of gossip about Mildred and her family as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean, that's typical small-town America, um, or any small town, really. So I I thought he was an interesting character because he's used, and not only uh, in relationship to her character, but in relationship to uh, Dixon's character. I think he ends up representing his anger or a person to take out his anger towards. Dixon and Hayes are both very angry people and they go about it in very different ways. They're very different from each other. But as we later learn, Dixon has a lot of anger issues. But I think the one character that subverts all these sort of expectations is William Willoughby because he actually reacts in a very compassionate way. I think he is our sort of lens of compassion in which to see these characters. I think he understands who 
Mildred is and what she's going through. He obviously doesn't like that he's being singled out, but I think he approaches it with a bit of humor. You know, mm-hmm. I think he's he's kind of like our our straight man in the story, the one that doesn't really go through much of a of a character journey, but rather I kind of see him as the the mentor type in which he leaves a legacy that helps the the main characters. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to focus on with mentors is that we often think of the mentor being an Obi-Wan Kenobi, a physical mentor. Or a Gandalf. Or a Gandalf, someone who is just hand-holding the protagonist on their road to achieving their goal. Right. But actually a mentor can be a presence as well and someone who simply in their absence and the legacy he leaves behind, the letters he writes, those last words where you can't argue back, you just have those words and nothing else, he's gone. I think it, it really, really works as a mentor image in the film, definitely. Yeah. Willoughby is definitely one of the best characters in the screenplay and I think makes the story so compelling for the first half until the midpoint. He's, he's a really important character. In the screenplay version, there's more of a sense that the news are hounding him a bit more as well, kind of invading his privacy, Mm. following him to the police Mm -hmm. station. And there's all these reporters outside waiting for him when he gets to work each day. Those scenes are taken out. And also a scene where Anne is waiting at the police station and invites him to go for a picnic, which I think just created a bit of a continuity issue. But essentially, I think it works very well to just let the audience imagine what is going on in the day-to-day rather than have these scenes of drama where it's not entirely character-driven. It's just a third party jumps in, and which is the news crews in this case. And mm. it, it, it seems very plotty. Those characters are there for the plot to advance the story a little bit more by having them harangue him at the police station. But really, it doesn't seem necessary. I think we get the sense just from the interactions between each of the people that we see who stands where and what their hopes are for this situation being resolved. Yes, and we never see any sort of cutscenes where we see the news and people reacting to the news. Whenever we see the news, it's always in relation to one of our main characters being a part of that sequence. So it's never, yeah, you're right, it's never like uh, Armageddon, you cut to the news anchors or whatever. One thing I'd like to talk about is just how we set up the story. What is Mildred's goal here? Because there's an interesting concept you can play around with as a screenwriter here, which is you can have a character who has a goal which is really kind of impossible. It's implied that some of this motivation for what she's doing comes from this unconscious desire to bring back the daughter that she lost. And when you know that a character can't do that, and you see them still struggling anyway, you you wonder what is the best thing she can hope for out of this situation? What really could change? And the scene with Willoughby where they're talking about what she would do. And he he asks her, "What, what would you have me do? And she wants every single man in America to have a blood sample handed into the police so that they can figure out who committed all of the crimes. And... He obviously responds, and this is part of the brilliance of Martin McDonough's dialogue, is he keeps a sequence like that funny throughout, because we're laughing along 
with Willoughby at that point, because he's trying to say there's definitely civil rights issues that would prevent that from happening. And we just see how fanatical she's become with some of her beliefs as well. What is she really hoping for here? Does she really want her case to be solved or does she want to change the world? Does she want the world to be suddenly perfect when we know that that isn't how life operates? Yeah, I think she's just, um, it's her anger. You know, she's very much driven by emotion. I think when you act on emotion, you're not really thinking rational. It's instinctive and it's immediate. You want that thing right there and now. And I think we're seeing a woman who's desperate. It, it, it's very much like I was saying a bit earlier, she's driven by emotions. And I think that's a constant recurrence in the, in, in the film where we see characters snap and act on their impulsive emotional nature as opposed to you know rationalizing this whole thing i think in the case of mildred the person around her that's the most rational is probably her son yeah it's a great story device to have him be sort of the the family that she has at the moment you know and kind of seeing how they both reacted to the death we see the level of how bad the grief is for her that she is not even there for her son in a way. Her husband's gone. You know, it's just them two left. Um, like you said, everything in the beginning is set up so that you know who the story is going to be sort of revolved around, which is essentially a war between Mildred and the police department. So from the beginning, we kind of are introduced to the story of this world and to these characters. Uh, you had mentioned earlier where you felt like the first 30 minutes, uh, you know, kind of feels like we're trotting along and, and then like the big things start happening. And one of the things that happens in the, the first 30 minutes or so is that we get used to characters being a certain type of way. When it shifts, I think that's when it, it's so interesting because of that, because we're used to characters being a certain way and we feel like they're going to stay that way. And so when things start to change a bit, it, it, it kind of feels very... Um, almost unexpected and very well earned in the way that it happens, which is quite tricky to pull off. You know, there's definitely moments where you almost have to think like, oh my God, do I buy that? But then it's just so, it's almost structured like a fable towards the end. And we'll, we'll talk about, I'll, I'll talk more about what I, what I mean by that when we get there. But yes, in the beginning, you know, we're getting to know the townspeople, even I think every small role there is no small role. I think every character brings so much presence and humor to the film, like even the um, news anchor who we see Mildred interacting with in a positive light, and then we see how that's flipped later on. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly getting to introduce to all these very memorable townspeople. We're introduced to uh, Dixon's mom, who's also very interesting. The town dwarf, as he puts it, James, played by Peter Dinklage, which was such a treat. That was such a... Mm -hmm such a fascinating character and he was on he was on screen for not that long but all these characters have so much intrigue yeah i remembered him being a much bigger presence in the film than he actually turned out to be and i think that's yeah. just because of the strength of his performance he's very memorable yeah and his and his part to play in her story as well i think was also very key to to her journey yeah, we shouldn't forget uh, Daryl Britt Gibson as Jerome as well, also introduced very early on. Oh, yes. And I think yeah, I think going back to what you said before about Martin McDonough's earlier work as a playwright, 
this makes so much sense. Knowing where certain writers came from previously in their career, this definitely has that sense of characters representing and being in the right place at the right time can often seem like a cheap trick, but it never feels that way in Three Billboards. Yeah. We, we're watching maybe about a dozen characters overall in this small town, but we feel like it's representative of the town as a whole and everything that's important to know about that drama. One of the other things that I think is done really well and is important to think about when you're trying to write a screenplay like this is that a lot of the power behind the story told in Three Billboards comes from the fact that those first 30 minutes are all about laying the groundwork and context for the later scenes and also introducing this idea that we think we know who these characters are. We think we know very clearly what a racist cop is like and what he'll do next. And we think we know what a character like Mildred would do. And actually, they constantly undermine our expectations after the midpoint and start to act in ways that we couldn't have predicted. Yeah. And I think that taking that time right at the beginning to lay out a sufficient number of scenes where we see them acting exactly in the way we expect them to act, that when they do change, it comes with all of that context of what happened before and it catches us off guard and keeps us engaged in the story because it is, there are no big action pieces in this film this is very much a human drama that there are fights there's there's some brutality on screen and there's fires but you know ultimately it's a character driven story that needs to keep us engaged simply through character dialogue performance because it's it's not visually going to be the same as an, an exploration film or something like that yeah and and to keep in mind that for every setup that you have that you're later going to pay off, you see how powerful Martin's setups are in terms of character and relationships of character. You know, in the beginning, we already set the animosity between Mildred and Dixon. We set the animosity up between Dixon and Red, specifically, in a very memorable scene where it alludes to Dixon having tortured some African-American person and apparently people know about it in town. So, you know, there's these little tidbits of information that reveal who this person is and how other people perceive this person. I think it becomes very obvious fairly quickly how the police department feels about Dixon. You know, I don't think we ever think that the whole police department is filled with these type of people but rather because of how they kind of see him. You know, he, he's very much at the end of the spectrum there. He's an extreme version of what might be happening in that police station. Well, Willoughby puts it one way, right, to Mildred with a smile on his face. He says, if we got rid of all the racists in the police department, we'd just have three guys yeah. left and they'd all hate the facts. <laughs> and that, right. that's a darkly, darkly comic statement, which yeah. ultimately does tie into this real feeling I think we have when we're watching this film is we are already filling in a lot of the information. And I think Dixon himself reveals 
quite clearly that he probably did torture someone. <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. there's any doubt that he actually did do something quite appalling to someone in custody. But we never see it. It's not something we see. We go by yep. what the characters tell us, and we therefore get involved in the gossip of the community. A lot of the things we believe about characters, for example, what we believe about Mildred's ex-husband, Charlie, we get that from her talking about him. That's mm. basically all we know about him and what we see him doing. And so there is a point where he confronts her aggressively mm -hmm. and that gives weight to her story. But there's always a sense that there's a little bit more to every story than we've actually seen. There's only one point where we actually get a flashback yep. to anything that happened before the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think setting up also, you know, just sort of the extreme ways of each character, for example, with Mildred, when she drops off her son in school and, you know, she, uh, you know, she gets the sense that people are talking about her. She goes, gets out of the car and she goes over and she kicks two kids. She kicks them in the crotch. I think those are the kind of moments where he sets up this humor without it being a funny scene, but it's just a funny moment within what is a very dark scene. You know, you, you kind of see the extreme of her, of her pain. You know, it's the fact that she doesn't care at this point. She'll go and kick some middle schoolers or high schoolers, but it's funny. Like who does that? You know, <laughs> imagine your mother doing that to someone from school, but nonetheless, it never leaves any doubt to the audience who these characters are and what they're going through. Uh, and like you said, you know, other people give weight to their history. I think for her, at one point, James tells her that, you know, she's the one that never smiles, the crazy lady. So, you know, he's kind of speaking on behalf of the town and how they all perceive her. So you're right. There's always a constant sort of gossipy feel to the film. There's also a, a scene fairly on in the film where they're at a bar. James is in that scene, I believe, with um, Dixon. And there's a bunch of like these minor characters all within yeah. the same bar. Red is in the scene in the screenplay. I think Jerome is too, and that bit is cut out. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Jerome's character gets a lot of his his scenes cut by by the final version. Yeah, which potentially does add. You know, there there could be a director's cut version of this film in the future that would have thirty minutes of extra content. I don't think it would change anything significantly. No, but certainly. A bit of Jerome's story is interesting because there's there's just a couple of times later on in the film where his appearance is implied, whereas we actually get some reasons for why he acts certain ways around different characters. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's something to really think about with Three Billboards as a screenplay is the extent to which a lot of it depends upon who is talking to who and we see the different sides of characters based on who they're interacting with mm. because Dixon we do see the very dangerous side of him come out when he's interacting with Red for example when we see him interacting with Willoughby we see him as a kid who doesn't really have a father and looks up to Willoughby as his mentor yeah and then when we see him with his mother we also see what kind of a home he comes from we question what kind of aspirations there are for a person like him who grows up in that environment with 
a mother who is quite outspoken and radical in her views and clearly instructs him and teaches him to be a certain way as well Yeah, with this idea of toughening him up, perhaps. I think in the screenplay, the mother character is written with a little bit more heart. I think the casting probably influenced it too because Absolutely. she's a very tough, tough, tough cookie. Yeah, that actress has appeared in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia as Mac's mother as well mm. and basically plays a similar character who is a little bit lost, let's say, just the kind of person who sits at home drinking in front of the TV. Mm. And I think that aspect of the character was brought out more in the film, whereas in the screenplay she does have a few more heart-to-hearts with Dixon and, and talks to him a little bit more and seems to be a bit more of a caring mother who, in being so overprotective and so misguided in her opinions about things like race relations, <laughs> that yeah. it actually has had a very negative effect on him and his development overall. Well, now that we're talking about this, something something that comes to mind is, you know, he kind of represents a unfinished mind being molded. You know, he is very much like a child. He's constantly reading comic books and he's, you just get the sense that, you know, he's in this arrested development and his childhood home, which is probably the only home he's been in, um, he's not married. He just lives with his mother. Even though he's not five, you still get the vibe of a very un, like the, the brain is still being molded by his uh, environment, which is his mom in this case. And yes, you're right. It, it kind of brings that into the mix without really beating you over the head about it. But you do get to see where his um, perspective might be coming from. And and it kind of gives you a little bit more empathy for him as a character and his own thoughts, especially as the film goes on and you get to see how... I, I feel like it kind of sets up why his character changes as quickly as it does and we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to that when we get there and i have more thoughts on that but but yes um i think what the what this the film does in the in the first act is very much um create very memorable characters um they're also different from each other there's there's also a very clever use of things for example a moment of humor that suddenly isn't just humor and actually is relevant to the storyline. That happens, for example, when Dixon claims he's had two complaints and one was from a lady with a funny eye and the other <laughs> from a fat dentist. And Willoughby looks at him like he's an idiot. That's hilarious. But of course, then we see Milton well, see, that's what I mean. the yeah. dentist who happens to be fat and suddenly, as an audience, our mind makes that connection to that joke that yeah. what was seemingly a throwaway joke actually was quite important to the sequence of events. And then I think there was a, a scene that also included the lady with the funny eye that was taken out as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that's why I felt this story carried such a refined and very sophisticated tone. It wasn't trying to tell you jokes. It wasn't trying to, to be funny. Um, I think that the the humor just naturally came from these circumstances, and it was just part of the story. It wasn't meant to 
to give you a laugh. Well, I mean, it was, but um, the work that Martin did and to try to find those exact moments and have those moments also be telling of character or in, in the example that you just mentioned of setting up the next scene of the dentist. I think those are, those are all excellent ways of using humor to not just make you laugh, but advance the story as well. Setups are important. I think it's, it's easy to envision a scene such as the scene where Dixon attacks Red and you think, well, this is going to be a centerpiece. It's going to happen right around the midpoint, just after the midpoint, really. In this particular case, it's going to be so memorable. You could forget to set it up. And I think that earlier barroom scene where we see Red interacting with Dixon and we get a sense of their shared history. They've clearly gone to the same high school together. They've grown up in the same town. They've always kind of disliked each other. And just giving us a little bit of that history gives us the context for that later scene to really make a much more powerful impact and also not have us questioning why a policeman would suddenly do this. And I think that's very, very important and it's easy to forget how much work needs to go into setting up key scenes because... For me, Willoughby's death is the whole heart and soul of this movie. I think it's it's one of the best scenes in modern cinema. It's really, really powerful. And it all comes because the work has been done to set it all up for us. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention a few reasons why I think that uh, scene is brilliant. I also agree with you. I think that's such a, a unforgettable turn because it kind of does come out of nowhere. It's such a left field thing. Obviously, you give your whole attention to it, but also through explaining his um, thinking why he did what he did by leaving those letters to all these different characters, you're still developing that character even though he's off screen. You know what I mean? Like Even towards the end, when we read the, the final letter for Dixon, you're still learning more about this guy and what kind of person he was. He is definitely the heart of it because through these letters, he was able to extend that legacy of empathy to Dixon and Mildred, who very desperately need what he had before he died. It's something that you don't really see in films too much where you have a character being developed even after their death through something simple as like writing notes and you get to... Uh, experience this legacy of this character and also change your perception of him. I think he was a very likable character in, before his death. You get to see how he treated his family, how he treated the circumstances around him, the patience he had for someone like Dixon, even though he himself had very different values and different work ethic. You know, you saw the patience in this character. And then when after his death and seeing everything that he wrote, he's kind of elevated to this role of a mentor without really intending to be a mentor. But I must say, when I first saw the film, I was a bit taken back by that moment and didn't necessarily think it made sense at the time. It was just so sudden and kind of like takes you out of it. But yeah, it all makes sense watching it again. I, th I think the idea is to catch you off guard. Right. Yeah. And so it had to seem sudden. It's right. a difficult job, isn't it? It needs to seem sudden and something you couldn't have predicted, but also 
if you Makes go sense. back and check, you have to see that it really was going that way the whole time. And and you're arguing with him the entire yeah. time. I mean, this time I, I was a little because I knew what was happening. I, I I I was on board, but the first time I saw it, I was like, "No, how can that be selfless? You killing yourself?" Like you, I, I was still questioning his own logic of taking his life the way he did. I didn't think he was being brave at all. I thought, okay, you just killed yourself. Like you could have had more time with your family. You just did this to them. Like what a horrific thing to do at, at your home. You know, it, it's such a, it takes a while for, for the, the logic behind what he did to kind of make sense with his intention. But you see his perspective. And I'm sure there's still, I'm sure there's people that don't quite agree with what he did. And there's still a part of me that feels like, eh, that's a little extreme. But you understand, um, I wouldn't do that personally, but you understand the sort of almost courage needed to do something like that because you are sparing your family something that is going to be much longer and more more time to suffer as opposed to a quicker death, I suppose. So technically, logically, it makes sense. I think one thing that we seek as human beings as well is rules to a game. We want to understand where the boundaries are, what the rules are in this world. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of things happen in three billboards, which are things that shouldn't happen. Mm. They're things that break the law. They're, there's things that involve arson and fist fights and all kinds of things that really shouldn't happen. But we want to know what the rules are, like where do the limits lie? And there's the moment after Mildred has been brought into the police station, she's having her second big kind of confrontation with Willoughby, and it's getting very heated, but he coughs up blood mm. and it sprays on her face and suddenly everything stops. They both know, okay, the time for fighting is over. This guy needs help. He needs sympathy. It doesn't matter what your opinions are. It's the same thing that happens in sports. You can be pushing and shoving. The moment a player falls on the ground with a broken ankle, everyone stops and they say, we've got to pause the game. Right. This this doesn't count as part of the game anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that idea was used in the screenplay to really give the audience a sense that they, these are real people. They react to things. This isn't just a movie where you can burn down a police station and throw someone out a window. It's also a, a real world in in our minds it becomes the real world because there's a rule to the game. Yes. And I really love that scene too. That was also very unexpected, you know, all of a sudden there's blood on your face and that's um, kinda takes you back a little bit. And also shows that, you know, there's still a little bit of a little bit of compassion in her. She still takes the moment to, you know, make sure that he's okay and and all of that. Yeah, no, I th I thought the character work in this was brilliant. And I think every single actor brought so much to the table as well. Because even though a lot of it is on the page, there's still little moments that I think that they bring to... And he wrote, uh, Martin wrote these uh, characters with those actors in mind. So I think that probably benefited the actors a lot because he was probably playing to their strengths and he knew what they would bring to the characters. So I think that really helped the development of the characters because he knew what actors he was going to use, which isn't a luxury that I think most screenwriters have, but I'm sure that really helped. 
No, but if if it's going to be a part of the project, by all means, it it should be center focus. And I think he drew out the comedic side of Sam Rockwell, for example, mm-hmm. who has always been very good in previous roles in embodying both dramatic and comedic together. Mm-hmm. And then with Woody Harrelson, you've got someone who started out as a comic actor, but in more recent years had been, for example, in True Detective, portraying a very serious, dramatic role, also in a police department. Right. And I think he was drawing out some of that that energy, yeah. the, the, this older, wiser Woody Harrelson. Younger Woody Harrelson from Cheers could have played the same role that Sam Rockwell plays as Dixon, I think. <laughs> Yeah, it was perfect roles for for all three of them and for everybody, like everyone in the supporting cast, I think, as well. And and going back a little bit to the mom, Dixon's mom, and why they chose to cast her, I think all you have to do is just listen to her say one sentence and you already get so much from that character. She had a very unique voice that really fit um, not only her character, but the sort of purpose of her character within the story of Dixon's emotional growth, because she's such a big part of his world. And we see how he begins to turn around that world and how he turns it into something different that he hadn't experienced before. And um, so, yeah. So is there anything more that you wanted to talk about in terms of um, uh, Willoughby's death and how kind of that shifted the entire story? Yes, I th- I think the thing I want to talk about, just because it, I, in my opinion it's so important, is the timing. I think when you're going to use this device mm-hmm. in any screenplay, you need to think very carefully about the exact timing. Because consider putting Willoughby's death right at the very beginning. Mildred puts up the billboards, she has a confrontation with him, he commits suicide. That would tell us a very different story. Mm -hmm. And what we actually get by it being placed right at the midpoint is that we've seen enough of his character to realize that actually there's a lot more going on in his life than the Mildred Hayes case. It's affecting him a lot, Mm. but ultimately this is a man who is dealing with a terminal illness. Right, And I think... Essentially, by putting it at the midpoint, one of the nice things that we get is these very clearly divided halves in the story. You've got one half that tells one particular aspect of of this town, mm-hmm. and then we have everything that happens afterwards. Yeah. And midpoints usually are used in this way in a screenplay. It's this idea that at some point right in the middle, everything changes. Right. And that kind of gets us through the second act and gives us that momentum to get through that and into the third act. I think it was really well-timed for maximum emotional impact. And if it had happened too late in the story, actually Willoughby's death would seem like an anticlimax, perhaps. But by putting it right Mm. in the middle, I think it has this huge impact on, on everything which is then followed up by Dixon crossing the street in that beautiful one-shot sequence and going up to Red Welby's office and throwing the guy out the window. 
Yes, absolutely. What it does is that it raises the stakes and sets up a different set of domino effect. What that means with his death is that uh, now all of a sudden the blame game is going to start and all eyes are going to shift to our protagonist, Mildred. And something that he also points out in what he wrote to her about how he actually bought another month's worth of rent for mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. for the sign, which means that you know she's going to get a lot of shit for it. Another thing that is beautifully set up, we've already seen the scene where they receive a mysterious envelope full of money that is paying for that next month, and we don't know the identity of the person who paid for it. Oh, yeah. Again, these setups are so well done in this screenplay. I don't think we've really analyzed a screenplay that sets things up so well since Ex Machina. I think that was the last one that basically every single thing that happened in that story had been set up earlier perfectly, and all the rules had been established really well. And then the best part is when you don't realize that that is what's happening. You know, you're not singling it out like, oh, yeah, there's probably setting up something. It just feels so organic to the character's journey and in the moment of the scene. Yeah, the comedy, I think, the humor in the dialogue often makes us miss the fact that we're being set up for a future storyline because so many of these seem like humorous small town moments. And when the money appears, we're watching Pamela, who is Fred's assistant Mm -hmm. at the advertising company. Right. She's talking about, oh, it was this fat little Mexican boy who brought the money. (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. And the the whole moment is so absurd that we forget about the fact that we're being set up for something or really questioning the identity. We're just laughing at her perception of what she's just experienced. That is so true. That's a good point. That is something that's, yeah, little um, little secrets behind the magic tricks. So yes, this moment was a seismic shift in the entire film. Um, also because of what you mentioned, um, it deeply affects Dixon. And I wanted to talk about also going back to Dixon's relationship with Red. So already that's his anger, completely possessing Dixon's character and who's the first person he thinks of is well the guy across the street because at this point everyone thinks that maybe the billboards had something to do with his death right which Mm -hmm. is something that Willoughby foresaw as well what I'm thinking is that Dixon probably thinks the same thing too and who's the one that allowed these billboards to go up the man across the street read. So I think in his mind of anger and his anger just wanting to find like the one responsible for this quickly goes to to red and and it's his violence acting out you know and i think it was brilliant the way it was showcased visually because you were mentioning how that was that one shot scene but we're like over the shoulder we're like right behind dixon which gives us the audience this sort of first person perspective almost so it's almost like we're behind these yeah we become yeah we become complicit in the crime because we are following him up the staircase into the office and back out again exactly and we can't help but watch you know like it's, it's such a unnerving unsettling feeling when he grabs him and just throws him out the out the window because it almost feels in that moment like we're doing it just visually so our mind is interpreting oh we're doing something horrible but we're, we can't stop it and that's such a great that was a great way to really bring that scene to life 
and just showcase just how extreme that anger um, he has and, and how powerful that is. I think something that's done very cleverly in the screenplay as well is, is, is it's almost like revising the screenplay. It's, it's looking back at the story and saying, who knows what and when? And there's a point, I think, in the screenplay version where it's just revealed right after Willoughby's death that these letters exist. There's a letter left to his daughters, a letter left to Dixon, and a letter left to Mildred. Yeah. And that's taken out the film. And I think that's really smart because that way, when Willoughby's letters turn up, they're a real surprise to us. When we go back and look at this, it's Dixon acted a certain way because of what he believed immediately after he found out that Willoughby had died. Right. Had that letter been in his hands, we know, having later seen the content of that letter, right. he wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Willoughby actually intended for him to get that letter and to give him time to think before he acted. And so much of what happens seems to be about characters who act and then they think about it a bit too late. And it, yes, there's a little bit of a cautionary message going on at, at different points where it's saying, what, how would this situation have turned out if everyone stopped and took a breath here <laughs> and thought about what was going to happen? And what does everyone end up doing? It's, it's a big commentary that I think that out of that commentary, you can extract things and say, this is a lot of what's happening throughout America in terms of different groups' perceptions of each other and what we believe that other groups think. Yeah. And then we act without thinking because we already believe we know what other people are thinking or doing. Yes. So, you know, at the end of that, one shot sequence where he throws Red out the window and just casually comes back into the office. We are introduced to Willoughby's replacement. And guess what? He is an African American. Yeah, that's um that's Clark Peters, who viewers will possibly recognize from The Wire. He played a detective in The Wire, so he's already associated in people's minds as as a police, police detective. Yeah. Got it. Haven't seen The Wire. I've heard great things, but but yes, uh, which I think is such a great twist to knowing who Dixon is and then having this man be the new man in charge. That whole sequence is such a mixture of different things. You At this point, for me personally, I don't dislike Dixon. I dislike what he does, but there's just something about him that for me already felt like he was just being very misguided and pretty much all those things that willoughby points out in his letter when he tells him that he actually doesn't think he's a bad person and the reasons why he thinks that that is very evident in sam rockwell's performance as dixon even when he's doing these terrible things and i don't know what are those small moments but there's just something about him that makes you feel like he's not the most threatening racist person out there i mean his beliefs and and his actions are obviously you know showing these very bad things but nonetheless there's just something within him that is really really good at at his core which i think later on would make sense why he changes so quickly because all of that was already in there it just needed to be pushed and guided which is what essentially willoughby's letter does for him 
which is really great. I think that's such a very complex character. Seeing him do something so violent and extreme in one scene and then the next scene he's getting fired and then if there's a part of you that kind of feels sorry for him it begs the question why are you feeling sorry for someone that just threw someone out the window you know what i mean there's all these very little nuances to the character that i thought was really brilliant to set up the journey that he takes in the second half of the film that makes you buy into it yeah it's very smart writing to offer a character like that a chance of redemption. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to a different view of humanity, which is best done by drama writers, is to say, look, what would the news call this person? They'd call him a racist cop. Like, once you label things, you believe you know exactly how they're going to behave. You know how you're going to judge them. You've got all your opinions sorted out. And good drama writing, I think says, no, that's one aspect of this person. Yeah. Now look how he's going to surprise you next. Mm -hmm. And I think he buys just enough goodwill from the audience. When the police station burns down, that's another moment in the screenplay that the Stars and Stripes are called out specifically as having to be in shot mm. because it's so important to have that visual image on screen as well of the flag burning but yes he, he gains so much goodwill from us as an audience but that only works if he does turn it around and we next see him as this jobless drunk and we doubt that there's anything he's going to be able to do to to help anyone but of course he does find redemption i think in this story he does and i think the first act of that is trying to save the file that was in the office when everything was sort of burning, which is an act that I think Mildred takes notice. Because that scene is so brilliant in the way that it's not just a character's shift, but you have a shift in emotional themes. So for example, both Mildred and Dixon have these very different angers, but they're both in a very angry place nonetheless. And at this point, someone already burned Mildred's billboards. So she's pissed off. So she's at another level of anger that we hadn't seen before. So much so that she burns down the you know, freaking police station. So that is the extension of her anger. That is like the peak of her anger. So we have a peak in a character's um, emotional journey. And we also have a peak moment for Dixon. This is the moment where Dixon's soul is being called and it's being through this letter that he's reading. So you have these two very opposite forces happening. You have this force of, you know, sort of a redemptive um, journey starting and you have the peak of, a, uh, you know, sort of her anger happening at the same time. Yeah, that, that's a moment she realizes that anger will not solve everything. Yeah, I think, I think it kind of, yeah, I think after the fact when she sees actually someone burning on the street, I think it all kind of just wakes her up from it, you know? Yeah, and what's running through her mind, it's seeing this guy lying on the ground. Yeah. He's just suffered severe burns, and he saved her case file. Yes. Of all the things that he could take out with him, it was that one thing. It shows what the midpoint did. Suddenly, all the stuff we believed was true about characters early on is not true, and that's what the characters themselves start discovering as well yeah she thought she had dixon pegged she knew exactly what he was like 
Not at all. You know, characters, I think we've mentioned this on most episodes of the show, but when a character is under the most pressure imaginable, we see what they're really made of. And that's something we see in this case. This guy suddenly realizes the whole building is burning down around him and he makes a spur of the moment decision. And it's, yeah. it's quite a selfless decision. Yeah, and I think he was deeply touched by everything he was reading in that letter that Willoughby left him. So much so that, like you mentioned earlier, he saw him as a father figure. So I think that probably had an extra weight uh, to his words. And, and even when the fire is raging and he's still calling back to the letter, you know, where, uh, you know, he says, stay calm because in the letter, Willoughby said, you know, the, the key to being a good police officer is love. And, and it's um, something that one needs to be quiet in order to get that you know you have to be still and in, in, in order to achieve that and then yeah that's that's sort of the beginning of that journey so that's something that was a repercussion from the midpoint and i think this particular beat is also foreshadowing what's going to eventually happen between these two characters it sets up that stage you know that that file on the ground you have dixon all burnt up and then you have mildred there being the cause of all this and this revelation that this man that she thought hated her or that she thought was a certain way, now there's a, a shift. I really love mirrors in cinema. I think it's it's really great when you have two different sides of the same thing. I, I've already referred to the idea that these reds and blues appear repeatedly in different sequences, mm -hmm. which are colors associated with the police department and the American flag. But the mirror of having the billboards burned down mm -hmm. and Mildred struggling to put out that fire and then her causing this fire of her own mm. is a beautiful mirror. Of Those two scenes mm. need each other, I think, to have the maximum impact. You see one from one perspective and one from the other. And it is... Oh, for sure. It is an eye for an eye mentality that's coming through. It's, mm -hmm. you did this to me and my billboards, well, I'm going to do this to you. Yep. I've seen the film... A couple of times. I don't think in the film her ex-husband is a cop or an mm. ex-cop. No. But in the screenplay, it is mentioned that he used to be a policeman. I think that was a good thing to write that out. I think that was complicating things a little bit too yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. I bring it up because he's the one who burnt down the billboards. And maybe the original motivation was that he was in some way involved in protecting Willoughby and the police department. But... Mm. In the end, I think it's just him being really, really angry at his ex-wife, and I think that's motivation enough. Yeah, and 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 that raises too many questions. You know, he's in the police office. I mean, he's a police officer, but you know, why isn't he looking for his daughter? You know, it would have raised a whole other thing. And going back to that that scene where the billboards are on fire, I thought that was such a oh that. that that moment where she's fighting for the um, the fire extinguisher from her son, and she just kind of uh, for a second shows like this crazy pain she has in her in her mind. I mean, in her face, and like scares him off. So she takes the fire extinguisher, which is probably just a ploy to get the fire extinguisher. But I think in that moment we saw the facial manifestation of her pain and her grief which was so powerful i got goosebumps when i saw that moment because it's like she's showing us what she's really going through in the inside but she just kind of keeps at bay and only comes out when she's doing all these very horrific things so francis mcdormand based her 
acting style in this film on John Wayne. I heard that, yeah. And there is a lot of that brooding kind of silence and intensity in her expression, mm-hmm. which works really well. But then when we see the flashback of how she was before her daughter died, we notice she is a lot more feminine. She is yep. She is a lot less aggressive and angry. Mm-hmm. And so that flashback, I think, works very well as giving us that point of reference for maybe how much her character has transformed in these months that her daughter's been dead. Yeah. In the screenplay, that flashback actually is placed right at the very end of the film. It's kind of a big reveal. Yeah. Right before you get the final, final scenes. And in the film, it's somewhere much earlier, I think. It gives us a lot of context for how she feels responsible for her own daughter's death. I think that's a useful thing to have in mind throughout a lot of the film. But the screenplay actually included a final bit to that flashback where Angela, the daughter, comes back to apologize to her mum, and Mildred ignores her, and then she storms out the house again. And so maybe it was just too much of the same, but I do think that really could have had a powerful impact as well, just having that extra little moment. It it could only be a 30-second sequence, but I think it really tells you a lot. It's it's an interesting way of looking back at this story, knowing that that scene could have been in it, I think. Yeah. That Angela comes back and Mildred just ignores her and keeps it that way. The last thing that she said was, well, I do hope you get raped. Yeah, that's tough. And I think we understand because of that, it's never going to go away that that it's like she's chasing something that she's never going to find. You know, I think she's probably chasing time. So she wants to go back to that moment and, and change it. And last words are so important. Yeah. And we see that with Willoughby. He sets up his suicide so that his perfect day with his wife is his last day. Yeah. And that the last words they say to each other, that it's something silly and humorous. So it's not something terrible. It's not her crying her eyes out by his bedside in a hospital while he, he can't communicate with her anymore. Yeah, He makes it so it's a perfect day. And, and you just see this reversal of that in Mildred. And that the last thing she ever said to her daughter was something really hurtful. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a such an intriguing thing too. I mean, the, the whole Willoughby thing of killing himself like that. And I mean, I think it makes sense, but I think um, I would have just gone to like one of those places where they do like self-suicide and like you take like an injection. I, mean, I just I just feel like, damn, like, you know, shooting uh, yourself. That's, that's extreme. That's not how they do it in Missouri. <laughs> that, that's definitely a Missouri thing, probably. That's the Missouri way. But yes, There's only one scene that was taken out that I do want to bring up just because I imagine most people are not going to read the screenplay. They're just going to listen to us talk about it. And one thing to know about that original screenplay, the 103-page version, is that after Dixon gets fired, he goes to the bar. And when he's there, he gets really drunk. And the barman's basically trying to get him to leave. But Jerome is there. And Jerome says he's going to show him a magic trick Mm. and just kind of messes with him for a second, takes his watch off his hand and then gives it back to him. And that makes that later scene where he finds who he believes is the rapist and says he's going to do a magic trick and ends up scratching him across the face to get his DNA. Mm. It's actually a callback Mm. to that earlier scene, which got cut. I think the story works without it, but I, I don't know what you think. I think it 
could have been stronger with just that reference point there. And also could have created a bit more screen time for Jerome, who I think was brilliant in every scene he was in. Yeah, it's almost like Jerome has this very strict moral lens to the film. You know, he, he kind of seems someone that's very, very serious about what's right and what's wrong. And he brings mm-hmm. that sort of morality to, to a lot of the scenes. That's a good question. The plus side, yeah, that would have made that scene a little bit more of a, oh, yeah, make that connection to that previous scene, which would have been cool. But yeah, he doesn't he doesn't nearly have that effect in the film. But he's, I think, enough there to kind of have that part of what he brings to the table be present in the film, um, especially because he was the one responsible for putting putting those up there, the billboards. But how would you feel about that, for example, if this was your story and you felt you'd written in a scene where, okay, this character's going to do something very significant, mm. which is to get the DNA of the suspect. But what he does is he references something that happened in an earlier scene. Mm. Does it? Does that earlier scene need to be there? Or if you got a note like that from a studio, like take that scene out, would you just say, yeah, I guess I should just take it out? Or would you fight that point and say, well, it's referencing something earlier? Well, I would probably be defensive because I probably just would be because <laughs> I wrote it and I'm just like, well, I wrote it, so it has a purpose. But that being said, I don't think in this particular case, I don't think you need that scene to make this scene work because this scene is very much about him specifically getting the DNA. So I think because of that, it doesn't lose its power or its its, its moment there. It's a very powerful sequence. That yeah. fight, he's obviously in quite a state, you know, most of his body is burnt still. And then yeah. just getting yeah. beaten up, it's, it's, it's very horrifying. It shows his selflessness as well. It shows that he's already on this path of, um, he's going to do things a bit differently now. And I think that was such a powerful way to show that progress in his uh, emotional journey. So yeah, I mean, I would have added another shade to the to the scene, but I don't think it's necessarily one that, you know, by not having it affects the the overall flow of the film. There was also another scene I think that they took out that was very significant. Mildred goes to visit Red at the hospital. Yes, and they have that's and true. They have that, that was taken up. They have that that bit of a conversation there. Yeah, Red kind of disappears actually after that last point where he crosses paths with Dixon in the hospital. Yeah, and yeah, there was yeah. a big scene where Mildred went in to see him. Yeah, it's a lovely scene to to read, and it's kind of cool to see these two characters kind of reunite after they had a bit of a you know small sort of relationship going in the beginning of the film. But I don't think it was necessary. I don't think it added anything to the story or the momentum. Yeah, I I don't think there's anything that's really taken out of those 20 pages that needs to be in there. I think Three Billboards works perfectly fine without it. Yeah, There's just a couple of times where I feel oh, well, if you had included that, it it shifts our understanding a little bit or it gives us a little bit more. But essentially, yeah, I don't think anyone is dying for a director's cut version of this with an extra 20 minutes. I think it's fine as it is. Well, you know what's also very interesting to me is that this, and I I still haven't figured it out, but this script, well, I read both, you know, the 105 or 103 page one and then the shorter 85 one. The film is still two hours. That's not 120 yeah, it's pages. Mm-hmm. It's still significantly 
if we're gonna do page equals a minute, you know, it's um, yeah, it's still, which just I think we know I by know. now that it doesn't. But yeah, it's it's but very it's still short, fairly an 80, shorter, an eighty than the, page screenplay. I think the only one we've looked at ourselves that was that short that had that much content was Lost in Translation. Oh yeah. Or maybe La La Land, which it makes sense because a musical, you write a couple of yeah. lines for five minutes of music. But yeah, I think Lost in Translation is the only one that was this short, but this complicated and this intricate and full of ideas yeah. and concepts and great character development, great dialogue. I just couldn't for the life of me figure out why that just didn't add up. But I think a lot of it is, for example, that one shot deal, it was probably just like, couple sentences in the script but it you know on short, screen it was yeah. on screen it was a good like four minutes just simply because it was a one shot and you're following him the entire time and i think also there's a lot of small moments that are stretched out a bit in the edit in the film you know which i kind of thought so going back just a bit to i kind of wish they would have kept in a little bit of that beginning scene between James and Mildred at the restaurant. So, you know, just to recap, the police arrive right after the police building is on fire and Mildred is out there. And so James also happens to be outside and he covers for her by saying that they, um, they were together. So as a way of um, thanking him, you know, uh, she takes him to dinner. Mildred takes uh, James to dinner. They have dinner. But in the script that was longer, there's a bit before he goes to the bathroom and her husband comes and you know starts commenting on their date. There's a couple of moments where I believe her husband and her girlfriend walk in and um, Mildred is seemingly embarrassed. And there's a couple of other things that happen that you know starts to give him the idea that she just doesn't she's obviously not happy there and she's obviously embarrassed to be seen around him, um, which I kind of wish they would have kept a little bit of that so that when he did say that, you know, I, you've been embarrassed by me the entire night, maybe that would have given a little more weight. I think that's one where I was like, oh, okay, I think that would have added a little bit more to the scene, but it's, I guess it's not really about him. So maybe that's, that was their thinking. They're going to take it out. But um, that served well in terms of her character because at the end of the film, one of the most powerful, I mean, at the end of that scene, one of the most powerful moments is when he turns it around on her. It's like, you think I'm not a catch, you know? Like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm small and I drink, I have a drinking problem, but look at you. You know what I mean? Like, who are you to judge me? And I thought that was such a brilliant moment because it's not just for her, but for us, the audience too. It's like, we get to see, again, all these very unflattering traits that she has or that well, more specifically, what her anger is making her do. So I thought that was very brilliant to to spotlight that through him as a character. So the ending of the film really is that they're going to take justice into their own hands. Dixon goes and visits Abercrombie at his office, and he says it was great work, but essentially that's not the guy. He wasn't in the country. He was on some military placement at that point presumably the crime he committed was done outside of the u.s mm -hmm. but it was to someone who suffered just as much as mildred's daughter and probably it was even worse because you know this occupying army went into their country and he did that to an innocent civilian 
And so they make a decision that they're going to take justice into their own hands. Yep. Now, in my opinion, it's not entirely a redemptive arc at all. I think we leave these characters as some pretty broken people. And we leave them on that journey where they're going to make a decision. They're going to decide whether or not they're going to do it. They're going to kill this guy or not. And they say they're going to make their mind up on the way. So is it a redemptive story? Is it a story that says, oh, none of this matters, that it doesn't matter that this character is a terrible person and that he's a racist or anything like that? Or I think it's a, a lot more subtle than that. I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a story that really leaves the audience saying, there are no heroes here. But what there is is still a lot of pain. And we see how these characters take out that pain. And ultimately, it's a story that doesn't really have an ending in that beautiful way that when a story doesn't have an ending, the audience is invited to create their own ending to it. And I think that might be the case of some critics of Three Billboards is that they kind of already created their own ending for Three Billboards in their own mind. Mm. But actually, this I don't think the screenplay says anything, and that's not really the purpose of drama. Right. It's not meant to tell you how to live your life. It's meant to get you thinking and engage with the subject matter in front of you. Mm-hmm. That's all its purpose is. It's, I don't think there's any preaching going on in Three Billboards. And I don't think even preaching of the sense of, oh, this is a cautionary tale. You shouldn't be like these people. No. I think it's saying, this is the kind of story that takes place most days in the United States, that people are grappling with similar issues of pain that they can't let go of, blaming different groups. And this is where you might end up if you pursue that path. I agree that it's a powerful exploration of that anger and that grief, and it does a good job at honoring that and giving it the respect that it deserves as something that a lot of people go through. And by doing that authentically, by showing especially Frances McDormand's character as nothing but what she is, which is a grief-stricken mother who's angry, that's it. you know. And I don't think that... I don't think the film tries to pretend otherwise or that she reaches enlightenment at the end. I think when we do finally get to see her smile, it has such an effect. It's only then when she smiles that you realize that she hasn't smiled the entire time. And that happens in the car at the end. And it's something that Dixon says that makes her laugh. And what I got in that moment as a vibe is these two very broken people who are in a lot of pain have finally found each other. And I think essentially that's kind of what I guess the silver lining at the end is. It's not that they're okay now. It's not that they're all of a sudden are in some sort of peace or they're happy, but rather they've found someone to fully connect with in terms of their pain. And it, and it was the most unlikely person that they thought they would relate to one another. You know what I mean? So I think it just touches, it just hints at redemption. I think it just plays with the idea for the audience, like it, they could be some sort of redemption. Well, not for her necessarily, because she's going through that you know, emotional turmoil. And it, that's another piece. But for him, it teases that. It's just kind of giving you a hint of, of where maybe his journey is going to take him without beating you over the head as to what he learned and what he thinks now, it's more of like that that hint. Yeah, he's this guy who learned too late. He's already lost his job. 
And now he's got to figure out a new purpose for himself. Mm -hmm. And is his purpose going to be part of righting these wrongs? Is it going to be taking on some sort of vigilante role in his life? Or is it not? But I I think the film is open-ended enough to say, look, what Mildred wants more than anything is vengeance. She wants others to feel the pain that she's feeling. And the film just at the very end gives you a sense that she and Dixon might realize just in time that causing more pain isn't going to solve anything. But it never says if that's going to happen or not. It just suggests that both these characters, their story is going to be fulfilled beyond the screen. Yeah, and and I think um, that's explored through the questions, the very last question they ask themselves. You know, it's... um, they're on this sort of vigilante crusade, uh, but are they really, or is it self-serving for their anger? You know, yeah. and I think it's and, and I think it's something that they even themselves question when he says, "Like, just are you sure about killing this guy?" And I mean, there's they don't know. They're they're still the same broken people who lost their way. You know, here they are acting again on impulse, on emotion. They didn't really think about it too much. They just got in the car and they just went. I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel to this. It would be kind of interesting Mm. to follow them on a road trip. But nonetheless, even to themselves, it's not clear what their path is and and really what they have gained from this whole experience rather than they're just on the road and they're going to try to figure it out. One thing that's implied in an ending like that is that emotional states diminish over time. Grief does, pain does, anger does. Mm. You know, when someone's angry, we say, just walk it off. Take, take a time out for 15 minutes. Right. Calm down. And it's the fact that the person they're after is not around the corner. There's a long drive from Missouri to Idaho and time to think mm-hmm. and time to cool off and time to reflect, which is something it feels like those characters, pretty much none of the characters in this film, aside from Willoughby, really, have been taking the time to think and get their thoughts down and talk it out. So I think in that way, it's not really a redemptive story. It's more a story about these characters finally granting themselves the time to think through their actions. Yeah, it's taking a moment of clarity of not being in the emotion. Absolutely. It's like finally getting a little break amidst the storm. Um, And that's definitely the, the, the vibe that we get at the end, for sure. But yeah, in in my opinion, if anyone thinks this story is saying that Dixon actually turns out to be a hero and we're all celebrating him at the end, I think they've vastly misread that entire story. I I would be shocked yeah. if the majority of audience members went out of that going, I want to grow up to be just like Dixon. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I would hope not. Uh, so I'll just say... I think this was a brilliant film for us to explore and thanks to our listeners for suggesting it to us. And we hope to do more of that in the future and taking feedback from the community and everything like that. Thank you, Alan, for joining me again for another episode. Thank you. And thank you to uh, all our listeners. Um, You're right. This was a great film to explore as um, someone who's constantly wanting to better my craft. (laughs) 